Good morning. Welcome to the south side of 60 degrees. It is good to be back here. If you're a guest with us this morning, we are really glad to have you. We're glad you've joined us. And you, you find us uh, in the second week of a new series. Last week, we started a new series on the church, where we're looking at the many different words that the Bible uses to describe who and what we are. We want the scriptures to remind us of the beauty of what Christ has done and the beauty of what Christ has made us. Because what you think about the church is a reflection of what you think about Jesus. And the first thing we considered last week was how the church is a family. Not the Olive Garden kind, but a family of divine significance, a family born of divine sacrifice. We are brother, we are sister, united in Christ with God as our Father. We are family. And this week we're going to look at how Paul taught the church in Corinth how we are a body. We are the body. Of Christ. And when you read the passage and heard it read to you, there's a sense in which it's rather straightforward. You can get a sense of what Paul is saying pretty easily because he uses a simple metaphor to describe the church as a body where everybody plays a part. But the image of the church as a body becomes more complex whenever we see it in its historical context. Because this body metaphor wasn't anything new to the Corinthian church. This wasn't the first time they'd heard that they were a part of a body. Because there's actually a well-used metaphor in Greco-Roman culture, where the whole Roman Empire was described as a body. But Paul uses this metaphor to show the difference between how the church operates and how the world operates. One body is filled with the Spirit. One body is corrupted by sin. And he wants to correct their understanding of the church because the Corinthians were bringing in the values and the systems of the world into the life of the church, and it was destroying them. They were a hot mess by the time Paul sat down to write this letter. And so what is Paul trying to correct? What were the Corinthians actually doing? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, the body was a commonly used metaphor for understanding Roman society as a whole. And they would use the body metaphor to talk about the unity of the empire and how everybody played their part inside the empire. So on the surface, that seems nice. Everybody has a role. Paul seems to be saying the same thing, so what's the difference? Well, in Roman culture, the body metaphor was used as a means of suppression and class separation. It was used to make sure that the lower classes stayed in their lane, didn't revolt, and accepted their lot in life, and that they existed 
for the higher parts of the body. It was a means of consolidating power and wealth at the top of society among the elite and making sure the lessers didn't rebel against the greaters and disrupt the balance of power. So in short, Roman culture used this body metaphor to bring about unity through uniformity. As long as everybody does what they're supposed to, and as long as everybody thinks the same and supports the system, then everything will be fine. Nobody gets hurt. It's all supposed to be this way. So think about this vision of unity for a second then. It's built on a system that keeps the poor suppressed and powerless. It's a system that maintained division between the top and the bottom, between the haves and the have-nots. It's a system that divided up society based on class and status and privilege and said some were more valuable and worthy of honor than others. So it's a system that worked out great for those at the top. But it offered nothing to those at the bottom. This body metaphor was used in Roman society to create unity through division and separation and distinction. And the Corinthians were bringing all of that into the life of the church. So during the Lord's Supper, the wealthy would eat separately from the poor and make them sit in another room. The wealthy members in the church would eat the Lord's Supper first and then give the scraps to the poor. They were making value judgments about one another based on giftings and saying certain gifts were more important than others and worthy of greater honor. And class distinctions from the outside world were alive and well inside the church to where those of higher status were not interacting with those of lower status. It was a church that operated by the values of Roman culture, not by the reality of who they were in Christ. And so Paul says, yes, beloved, you are a body, but you are the body of Christ. And that means you have to see one another in a completely different manner than the way that you have been trained by the world. Because the body of Christ operates by the values of another world. And the first thing Paul addresses is how a big part of their division was being caused by the Corinthians thinking that status in the outside world equated to status inside the church. So if you were prominent in Roman society, then you were prominent in the church. If you were not prominent in Roman society, then you were not prominent inside the church. So Paul says in verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. 
all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul addresses this by saying, do you not remember your baptism and all that it means? Remember your baptism that represents the Spirit's work of raising you from death to life, uniting you with Jesus Christ and with one another. Who you are in the outside world has no significance inside the church. The worldly dividing lines between Jews and Gentiles and slaves and freemen, that's Paul's way of saying everybody No longer are those distinctions valid because all are received by grace into the body of Christ. Grace has stripped us all of status. And the church in every time and place has to be constantly on guard against allowing status and privilege and lifestyle from the outside world to creep into the church and create division inside the body. Because it will naturally create a hierarchy that implies the value and worth and welcomeness of others, which betrays the work of Christ. So for instance, take wealth. And how the elders of a church can also just coincidentally be the most wealthy men in the church. So influence looks like it's a product of income. Or does the leadership celebrate someone's character or their checkbook? Or a pastor whose schedule is always so busy because he's doing the Lord's work unless you happen to be a top giver? Or even just the simple ways that the community inside the church can just so naturally become divided based on socioeconomic status and what side of town you live on. Or even the simpler ways our eyes can scan the room to see if there's someone more important that we should be talking to other than the person that's standing in front of us. Who do you invite to lunch? Who do you invite into your home? Is it people that you feel have something to offer you socially to elevate your status? People you want to serve and show hospitality? What about politics? Does finding out someone has different political views make you think, how could they possibly take their faith seriously then? Or what about upbringing? Does finding out someone's church background not looking exactly the way yours was, subconsciously make you think, oh, you were raised Episcopal or Pentecostal or not raised in the church at all. Well, how could you possibly be a mature Christian? How messed up is your theology? Maybe I should be suspicious. The church can naturally create an internal hierarchy based on social status, politics, privilege, and past which naturally creates division within her because it elevates some over others. And Paul is saying that when you remove the grace of Christ as the basis of your life together, then you will operate by a system that will create insiders and outsiders and class distinctions. 
And he's saying that what's going to unite us isn't all of us agreeing to a system that only benefits a few or those just like you. What unites us is the Spirit of God that seeks to create a body that benefits the whole through mutual love and sacrificial submission to one another. Grace destroys status. Grace destroys everything that you think you are, everything that you think you've earned, everything that you think you bring in here. And it says that you are rooted in your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ by his unmerited favor towards you. Grace destroys status. And then Paul goes on in verses 14 to 20 to teach the Corinthians to celebrate the diversity of the body. Because they'd started to homogenize their church by only valuing certain roles and giftings at the expense of all the others. And I get that there can be a natural bent against the language of diversity. But anytime you hear diversity talked about in our culture, they're all borrowing Christian capital. Nobody in history ever introduced diversity as a value and something good except the Christian faith. It's Jesus. We need to reclaim diversity. And Paul is saying, talking about celebrating diversity, not for diversity for diversity's sake. He's not a cultural progressive. This isn't about representation. It's about recognition of what God himself is creating. He's talking about embracing the divinely orchestrated diversity among us. Because God has formed, God has fashioned us as a body for his purposes. And so if you're looking for a homogenized church, then you're not after what God is creating. You're just looking for a safe space where people think and act and look just like you. And Paul says the church is so much more. He says in verse 18, he reminds them that they were divinely assembled He says, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. That is powerful language. That's Genesis language here. Paul is using the language of creation where it says that God came close and he formed and fashioned Adam face to face like an artist working with clay. That is how God creates his people. That's how God has created us. He's formed and fashioned each part, each person into this new man that is the body of Christ together as one. I'll say it again. Your presence here is of divine significance. And Paul continues the body metaphor, and he says, So don't say then, because I'm not a hand, or because I'm not an eye, 
Therefore, I do not belong to the body. He's speaking to those who feel devalued in the church. He's also speaking to those who've overinflated their value in the church at the expense of all the others. And what Paul is correcting is how the Corinthians had placed greater value on certain giftings and roles over others, and because of that, it created second-class citizens inside the church. And they were just creating the same worldly dynamic where there were first-class members and then there was lower-class members. They'd completely lost sight of being a divinely created body of believers that gave significance and value to each member. Now, I get that you're not going to walk up to someone this morning and say, hey, um, I'm more important than you. At least I hope not. But Paul isn't talking about the words you say out loud. He's asking about the words you say in your heart. And the ways that we can value who we are at the expense of others. We value our contributions over others. So those who feel they have the gift of teaching can easily look down on others who have the gift of service. Or those who have the gift of service can feel more valuable and look around at others and think, well, I certainly don't see them doing anything. We know who makes this church run. But Jesus would say to the teacher, yes, teacher, you have been gifted. But who are you really presenting? Me or you? Yes, servant, you have been gifted. But who are you really serving? Me or you? Paul is saying, tap the brakes. Tap the brakes because God has created a diverse body with diverse gifts for diverse reasons. For us to be what God calls us to be, we need each other. We need to do this together. Because if we value certain gifts and roles above others, we mutate the body of Christ into a monster. Because we effectively say, everyone should be like me, an eye or an ear. And that, friends, is disgusting to think of the body of Christ as a giant blob of eyeballs or a giant collection of ears. The church is not a grotesque nightmare. And yet we can so often want to make it into one. And so what Paul is saying is simple. The purpose and role of the church is far greater than how God has gifted you. What the church needs is far more than you can provide. What she is called to do cannot be brought about simply based on what you are good at. Only one person has all the gifts. And we are not him. But let me say this. Because I want you to see yourself and your presence here in a different light this morning. The Spirit of God has given you gifts. 
Full stop. The Spirit of God has given you gifts, and you are placed here with divine purpose and divine intention. And this body metaphor that we are the body of Christ raises the water level for how we are to see ourselves. Why? Because it means your gifting and your role represents a part of Jesus' ministry. A part of what he did when he walked this earth is expressed through how the Spirit has gifted you, but also how he has gifted others. Therefore, celebrating one another and the diversity among us is to also celebrate Christ himself. And lastly, Paul addresses how the Corinthians had shoved out certain members of the body. He says in verse 21, The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor the head down to the feet, I have no need of you. And so the inference then, if you notice, is it's the eye to the hand. It's the head to the feet. (coughs) It's this downward looking point of view. Where certain members are exalting themselves and viewing others as disposable and effectively excommunicating them by saying, I have no need of you. You don't belong here. But the reason they're seen as disposable is in verse 22. These members are viewed as weak, less honorable. They're the unpresentable parts of the body that will bring shame upon the church if they are seen and exposed. So yes, Paul is now talking about the private parts. Evidently, Paul wanted to get as much mileage out of this body metaphor as he possibly could. Thank you, Paul, for making it awkward for everybody. When I sat down on Monday, I read through this passage, I did not connect with it at all until I got to this part. There's an obvious awkwardness to it. But what he's saying is absolutely beautiful. He's talking about the private parts of the body as a way of talking about those in the church that we look down upon as weak, less honorable, and shameful, and they're disposable. They're the parts of the body that we're afraid might bring shame upon us if they're exposed and seen. They're the parts that make us feel vulnerable to disgrace, so it's better then that they're not seen or removed entirely. So what does that look like then? Well, take your pick. The church can easily look down on all sorts of people who walk through her doors. Oh, you're divorced. Oh, you're going through a divorce. Oh, your marriage is struggling. 
We only like perfect marriages around here. Oh, you struggle with your sexuality. And we only feel comfortable with heterosexual sin around here. Oh, your child is living an alternate lifestyle or not walking with the Lord. We only like parents who got it right. Oh, you're a single parent with a past. I'm sure you'd be happier at a different church that can minister to people like you. Oh, you're new to the faith, and you're still rough around the edges. We only like mature Christian folk around here. Oh, you're going through a hard time. We just like happy faces around here. That's what Paul's talking about. How the church can look down on the parts that are deemed weak, dishonorable, and shameful. And if they're seen among us, then they will bring shame upon us. And so what then gets communicated is we have no need of you. You don't belong here. And the body of Christ is castrated. That's what he's saying. And Paul says, no, 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 no. In the body of Christ, those are the parts that are indispensable. They are the parts that are worthy of greater honor. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what the body of Christ does? Last week I was told a story after the first service. Someone came up to me and told me a story that happened almost 40 years ago now. And they still told this story with tears in their eyes. 40 years ago, this person was serving on the staff of a church in the upper Midwest. And there was a young woman who'd started attending the church. She was a single mother. Her baby was born out of wedlock, and her baby was mixed race. And eventually one Sunday, she stood up on stage. She shared her testimony. She made a beautiful profession of faith in Christ. Her baby was baptized. And they said it was just this beautiful, holy ground moment. And that day, this young woman sat in the pew behind the person who told me this story. And so after the service, they naturally turned to welcome her and receive her. But they got beat. Because there was a woman sitting behind this young woman. And she tapped this young woman on the shoulder, put her finger in her face, and she said, Honey, you have no business being in this church. Why does that story make you mad? Why do you feel the way you feel when you hear me tell that story? Why do the tears still come 40 years after that? Why does your heart break? 
Why is it that you just want to give that woman a hug? It's because you feel exactly what Paul is saying. This woman, in all of her mess, she didn't need to be shamed. She needed to be honored. She needed to be cherished. Treated as precious and celebrated. She needed someone to see her as a gift that Christ has brought to us worthy of our love, our kindness, and our compassion. She represents the most indispensable part of the body. But why? It's because Paul says in verse 22 that this is how God designed and composed the church. That it would be a body that gave greater honor to the parts that lacked it. It's a body. It's a church. It's composed where those in positions of power and influence move towards those of lesser power and influence. It's a place where those in places of honor would move towards those in places of dishonor to lift them up and be one. It's a place where those of strength move towards those who are weak to strengthen them and build them up. It's those in places of power moving towards those who are in places of vulnerability. It's insiders moving towards outsiders so they can be insiders together in Christ. Paul is saying the weak and the vulnerable and the dishonored are the most indispensable parts because without them, how else could we truly be the body of Christ? We cannot be the body of Christ without them because this is what the body of Christ does. Because when you look at the Gospels, what do we see the actual physical body of Christ doing? His body sat down next to that woman at the well. So worthy of shame and disgrace, yet so worthy of his full attention and mercy. We see his body stoop down to find the woman with the issue of blood hiding in the dirt so that he could restore her and elevate her in the eyes of her community. We see his ears listen for the cries of the suffering and the destitute and the desperate to raise them up from the gutter. We see his mouth speak comfort to the prostitute that everybody wanted to stone. We see his eyes look for the disgraced one hiding in a sycamore tree. We see his hands wash the feet of his disciples and the feet of his betrayer. We see his body tortured, made weak, beaten and dishonored and exposed and shamed and naked on a cross for all to see so that our shame would be removed so that we would be made strong, so that we would be made presentable to the Father, so that we could be one with him. This is what the body of Christ does. It moves down so others might be lifted up. So don't you see what it means to be the body of Christ 
in the most mysterious way, being his body means that through us, Christ continues his ministry on the earth in the power of his spirit. He has formed and fashioned this body with purpose to participate in his purposes in this world. To be a body that seeks to carry out his ministry that found the marginalized, the disgraced, the dishonored, and the ashamed, and show them kindness and compassion and mercy and lift them up so that we might be one with them. Because this is what the body of Christ does. So let's remember how life-changing the church can be. When she remembers who she is, when she remembers what she's supposed to do, and she remembers the one to whom she belongs, body and soul. So Redeemer Rockwall, who do we want to be? By his grace, might we be a place that taps the young woman on the shoulder and says with a smile, we are so glad you are here. Welcome home. Welcome to the family the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our Savior, our God, our Redeemer, our Master, our Resurrector, our Lord, our King, our vocabulary runs short to describe all that you are. And yet you would condescend by taking on flesh and entering in this world by way of a manger, a feeding trough, you poured yourself out as a drink offering so that we might be filled. Teach us the beauty of following in your example. Teach us the beauty and the power of loving one another the way that you have shown us and loved us. Might we be a place that receives with joy those that you would bring to us. We might see them with the eyes of Christ knowing that the grace of Christ is making all things new, drawing sinners, making them saints, resurrecting them to new life, of which we ourselves have received. We ask that you meet us at this table, that as we eat and drink of your grace, you would change us, you would unite us, and you would make us one. We ask all this in the precious name of Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.